Hello again. Welcome to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Uh, today, we have a special guest host, Roxanne Ahern. She's been a guest before with Ashley and definitely uh, one of the friends of DO and now becoming a, a co-host. Uh, and we also have a special guest, Andrew Millison. Uh, if you haven't heard of Andrew Millison and you're interested in permaculture, then you need to correct that. Um, Andrew is doing a lot of work uh, to really get the message of permaculture out. Uh, his videos explaining the principles and the concepts are probably the best you'll find online. And more and more, he's doing a lot of videos traveling around the world looking at permaculture in action. And so we want to talk about all of these topics, all of these related topics. But maybe I'll start. Roxanne, do you want to introduce yourself and then maybe do your own introduction to kind of how you related to, to Andrew's work? Um, well, I am i'm in arkansas i've been kind of a student of permaculture for about 13 years now and just growing food raising livestock all that time and so just interested in getting people more um into the production of their food and the things they consume and i took andrew's course at uh, Oregon State, I think it was about six years ago. And I had been reading every single book and applying the principles for a long time, but I learned so much when I took his course. And so I would definitely recommend it to anybody out there who's listening, even if you think you, you know a lot, um, it really stretched me and kind of forced me to do tasks that I might not have done without without the course. And I learned a lot about water. And when I tell people about Andrew and his work, that's always what I talk about. And that's always when he occurs to me is uh, water. And Andrew, I know you love water. So I think <laughs> so, we all uh, love water. <laughs> yeah. And um, right. And that is just so important when you are looking at any property, when you're setting up to grow things there, that's the most important thing. And I feel like Andrew has done really more than anyone I can think of um, in that aspect of it. And water is also a huge issue going on in lots of parts of the world, but in our American system too, because so much of our food comes from California and that's definitely a water issue there. So anyways, that's it. Um, Andrew, I'm just so glad to have you here. I'm excited to be on this podcast. I'm a big fan of it and also a big fan of Andrew. So. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, Andrew, why don't you just start by introducing yourself and particularly kind of your journey towards permaculture. Like, where did you discover it? Uh, what were the circumstances that got you interested and really yeah. made it kind of a life's passion? Yeah, well, actually, that it's really interesting because I would say one of the big sparks for me was being in northern New Mexico. Hmm. Um, so, and uh, Jason yeah. just informed me that he was grew up in northern Mexico northern New Mexico. So I grew up in Philadelphia on the East Coast as a city kid. Didn't really have any exposure to this kind of thing. And then I ended up traveling in my younger days, um, sort of dropped out of college and was like uh, going around with the Rainbow family back in the mid 90s and, you know, exploring all these places. I ended up in northern New Mexico hmm. and I ran into the earthships of right. Taos mm -hmm. and Yep. You know, where is the town I grew up in? So, oh, okay, great. So, yeah, yeah. So, so Taos, it was 
you know, we went to the, uh, was it the hot springs there on the Rio Grande river? Um, we stayed there and then we, I, I went into some shop to a bookstore and there was Michael Reynolds earthship books. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely fixated because I, at that time in my young twenties, I was, I was like, realized that I grew up in the city. I didn't know how to live, you know? And <clears throat> I realized that the world was not as it seemed, not as I was taught. And, you know, I suddenly, I had this sort of desperation. I was like, I don't know how to grow food. I don't know how to, how to exist, you know? And I, I so when I found these earthship books, I started looking through, I was like, all I need to do is build one of these earthships and like, I'm good. I've got my food covered. I've got my wastewater. I've got my heat. You know, I sort of had this idea that, that like I could have my entire sustenance, you know, happening in this earthship kind of thing. And so I got just really, I got really excited by the idea of these integrated, regenerative, you know, ecological design systems. And so I eventually uh, went back to college. I ended up at Prescott College in Prescott, Arizona, uh, where I started studying ecological design and more like the architecture end of sustainability. And they had a permaculture class there taught by the folks in Tucson, again, back to Tucson here, um, uh, Barbara Rose and Brad Lancaster and the Sonoran Permaculture Guild. And so I took a permaculture class in 1996 at Prescott College. And I was suddenly, I was like, oh, plants, right? Plants are absolutely incredible. And uh, I became infatuated with permaculture design and designing with plants as I, I thought of it in, in a way I was always an artist in a way I thought of it. I thought of it as a, as an artistic medium where the medium actually also is, it, it's like a living medium, you know, and, and you're doing this design you're planting things, planting gardens and they're growing and then you're relating with them. And it just was really something that um, just gave me a lot of personal fulfillment and it became clear that, you know, this was one way that humanity could get from our current state to a state of harmony. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's the only path, but it's definitely a roadmap to, you know, a better world. So, yeah, since 96, now it's been, yeah, like 27 years, I've pretty much been dedicated to permaculture at this point. Okay. Okay. So you, okay. So you, you took these courses in, in Arizona, uh, and, and now you're, you're at Oregon state. What, what was the kind of the inter intervening here? Did you, did, did you like, how did you, how did you continue to learn practice and how did you get into kind of an educational position? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. We did a, a webinar with my students, um, of a few different classes we have overlapping right now last night. And so I actually answered that question. I spent about two hours answering that question. Oh boy. So, okay. <laughs> That's why you're trying to skip it now. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, here we go. No. Okay. So, we're in um, an elevator. No, we're in a long elevator. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Well, I mean, basically I had a kid at 23. Okay. So suddenly I went from being fancy free guy who would like to just travel around, not be committed to anything to having being a father needing to earn a living so i had to get right to work and so i got a job 
doing landscaping with an ecological, an ecologically minded landscaper and him. And then I became his foreman. And then I ended up creating my own landscape company. And then I ended up um, working for uh, Maynard Keenan, the lead singer of Tool. I worked for him for two and a half years. I built his whole orchards and vineyards and everything like that in Jerome. Oh, area. Really? That's crazy. <laughs> I was a huge uh, fan when I was, when I was in my 20s. <laughs> what did you say? I said, that's crazy. I was a huge Tool fan in my 20s. So that that's just. Yeah, I had never actually heard of, I had never heard of Tool mm -hmm. when he got in touch with us, with me. And he actually really liked the, the whole fact that me and my whole crew had never heard of Tool. He was like, <laughs> good. He doesn't really yeah. want people, like he doesn't want fans around, you know. Yeah. So, so we worked there and that was, that was just sort of upscaled my whole, um, my whole like capacity to, you know, is this a large landscape? Like I said, we worked on it for two and a half years, steep. We, we terraced and did all these stone terraces and vineyards and orchards and everything like that for, for um, all that time. Um, I spent a couple years managing the far, uh, a desert farm at a place called Arcasanti, which is like a urban experiment in the desert in Arizona. Um, and then I started, uh, I transitioned my business to doing just rainwater harvesting and gray water. It was right when the gray water laws changed in Arizona um, to be the most lenient gray water laws in the country. So my business became basically installing gray water systems. And then I kind of got burned out on uh, building things for people because I got big enough that I just was ended up just running around all the time, driving materials to different crews. And suddenly I was like, well, this isn't really fun anymore, you know, at a certain size and you're not building stuff yourself. So uh, opportunity came up with one of, one of my mentors to work in a landscape architecture office. So I worked in the landscape architecture office for a couple of years. And that's where I learned drafting and a lot of the graphic representation and learned how, how, design happens in the conventional sense. Like, you know, we design stuff for universities and municipalities. And so that really sort of upped my, upped my design game, you might say. Um, but at the same time, I was studying climate change projections. I saw the, uh, between 2002 and 2005 in Prescott, we had the driest period in 1400 years. Um, and so I saw the, the bark beetle infested forests dying all around and the wildfires starting up and everything. And so <clears throat> meanwhile, I had, um, I had uh, met a different wife um, from my first one and um, I was having another child. And this was more like I was 34 at the time now. And so I just had an epiphany that um, I wanted to go where there was water hmm. and good farmland. You know, I wanted to sit, I was like, when, when my wife was pregnant, I was like, you know, where, uh, where do we, where does this kid want to grow up? And I kind of looked at the whole big picture of climate politics, geography, everything like that. And so I said, I think that this kid wants to grow up where there's rivers and farmland and uh, a, like a, a more a population that is a little more tuned into um, the land base, really, than where we were. 
So we moved to Oregon in uh, 2008. And at that point, um, I, I still started, was doing design work, but at that point we moved to Oregon. I didn't move to Corvallis to get a job at Oregon State University. I moved here just, actually it was right before the financial crash of 2008. Yeah. And I was tuned into like, here's the doomer optimism. I was tuned into all these doomer websites. And it was kind of like the economy is about to collapse. Uh -huh. Right. Uh -huh. So I was like, we need to get out of here. We need to go where there's food and water, where it looks like that, where the geography is conducive to human civilization, basically, as opposed to um, Arizona. One of my instructors at Prescott College described it as that, that we were all on a giant camping trip. <laughs> because all we're all of our stuff, everything was brought in from elsewhere. So I was like, I want to go to some place that actually has the basic resources and geography for humans to survive there. Mm -hmm. So I did my site evaluation, you know, and ended up in the Willamette Valley, ended up in Corvallis by great fortune. But then, um, luck, you know, a lot of my life has been just very good timing and good synchronicity. So there was a student group that had just started at OSU. It was a permaculture club and there was one very assertive woman named Sarah LaRock who decided that OSU is going to have a permaculture class. And then I started giving, I came there, I was like, well, let me find, like, I need to make some connections with this town. So I gave it some talks and stuff for the public and ended up connecting with the people from the permaculture club. And Sarah LaRock basically said, you're going to be the teacher of the permaculture class. And so she went and got signatures and she lobbied the horticulture department and went to the department head and was like, we want a permaculture class. Here's 50 signatures of people that want to take a permaculture class. And so they were like, all right, we'll try it out. And so they tried, you know, I'd say, meanwhile, I taught permaculture at Prescott College as right when I was in my, I took, I got my master's degree there in horticultural preservation, which is like heirloom fruit tree propagation um, and then, uh, I'm just backtracking for one second to say that they had a permaculture class, the same one that I had taken, they had it fully enrolled and they couldn't find a teacher. They had some issue and the teacher backed out. And I said, I'll teach the permaculture class when I was still in graduate school there. And so, so I had actually started teaching permaculture at Prescott college, but at Prescott college, it's a month long course. It's mm -hmm. like a, um, you had to have a block, like a block, and then the rest of the quarter. So I'd get a van or two vans, and I'd get students, and they would just, I would just have the students for a month. So I mean, I'd travel all over. I did an advanced course where we did, we did a field trip that was best of northern New Mexico permaculture sites. Huh. And we went all over with the Permaculture Institute, Scott Pittman, who's now um, deceased, uh, his uh, his organization, they set us up and I, I toured all these cool permaculture sites there. So I would have a great time. I would take students and we would just like head out on a road trip. Basically, I wasn't very much older than my students. And so, so I'd already had some experience teaching permaculture at the college age, although it was more of this like alternative hippie school versus, uh, you know, major land grant university. But I had that in my category there, you know, you know, in my, in my list of things I'd done. So, yeah, so we tried, we did the class at OSU. It went well. And then I got some, um, I had to work hard to get various funding sources and grants and stuff. And, um, eventually, um, we established the online class 
because they didn't actually have money to pay me. They weren't like, oh, we want a permaculture instructor. Here's a salary. They were like, okay, great. That went really well. Your class went well. The students like you. Sure, we can do a permaculture class, but we don't have any money. So you have to figure that out. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, um, so that's a whole other story. I don't, I don't know how, how, I don't know how detailed you want me to get here. Um, I'll just, I'll just fast forward and say that was 2009. Right. Now it's 2013. So it's been 14 years that I have been building this program. I still have done lots of design consultation and we built the program to the level now where I am able to really focus most of my attention on creating educational media. And like my true heart's desire is to spread this information for free, right? And so um, putting a lot of the, you know, traveling around the world, putting a lot of this content on YouTube and just making for like, I, I'm trying to move the needle here, you mm -hmm. know, and make, make this like incredible design science available to people in an entertaining way that they can get this information and they can get it joyfully and hopefully, you know, Im implement it in their own lives. Yeah. Roxanne, do you, you want to ask, ask a question? I'm curious because you said you want to move the needle. So you've been kind of immersed in the world that you've been in for quite some time. And so I wanted to ask, especially maybe in the last few years, have you felt and noticed the needle moving? Do you feel like people are paying attention more? Do they care more? What changes have you seen occur? Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like the move, the needle has moved for sure. Um, the amount of, well, I mean, first off, you know, you could just look at metrics, right? And like, just take like video views. I've had like over 30 million people or 30 million views of my videos on my YouTube channel, right? And so um, that, you know, and, and the feedback that I get from people, like I, I definitely, especially with some of the stuff with, with India, um, some of the stuff I've, I've done a lot of work um, documenting the incredible projects of the Pani Foundation. And I've heard from people all over the world who have been inspired by that story and actually are sort of implementing some of the same strategies that they're implementing with that project there. So I definitely get direct feedback from people who are saying, wow, I was really impacted by this. This is how I'm utilizing this in my own life. I also am from time to time contacted by people who are in a different realm, but have a lot of resources who are like investors or financial people and they'll contact me with different questions or you know sometimes they approach me about consulting or something like that and like it's just shown me that there's people that are way out of the homesteader realm that are looking at this and uh, these solutions you know whether it's wastewater I mean, it might just be one aspect it might just be like biological wastewater treatment systems or it might be like like how do we design and place new cities? I mean, people are, you know, like legit people are, are approaching me about these kind of things. So, I mean, I think the needle, well, it better move, you know, because the needle's also moving 
there's other needles that are also moving as well. You know, <laughs> the forces of destruction are marching steadily, you know, so yeah, that's my doomer optimism. Right, uh, right. Um, one is, I guess one interesting thing about, uh, you know, the, the India videos in particular is that, you know, it's, you know, it's whole villages kind of signing on and working together in a kind of a watershed context to make this transformational change. Uh, of course, I, I think in the United States, it's much harder to get this kind of collective you know, uh, collective will on board, right? It's it's usually individual yeah. homesteaders or farms, farmers, or maybe it's an eco village, but it's relatively small scale. Uh, do you see like a big difference in kind of the cultural context and, and some cultures are just much more amenable to the, kind of the, the, the scale that is, is necessary for kind of transformative design? Yeah, this is this is the main question that I'm getting right now. Is people are people are saying, okay, this is amazing. There's obviously a cultural context to India, for instance, where we see some of these mass movements, right? Just, you know, we had Gandhi not very far in. I mean, in, for some people in living memory, we had Gandhi who led the nation cooperatively to like rise up and throw off the colonizers that have been, you know, British for hundreds of years. So, I mean, there is a, there is a strong cooperation, you know, cooperative tendency in that culture. And you see that you see it all over the place, you know, um, in a lot of different, I could talk about that for a long time. So that's, so that's one thing. Um, but how do we apply something like that in the Western world? Now there's, there, there are a few major advantages that I've seen in India which are also major disadvantages here. One is the division of property management, of land management. So these villages in India, they're doing these incredible transformations. The village boundaries correspond with the watershed boundaries. So the political decision-making of the village is also, you know, corresponds with the ecological decision-making of the watershed. So they're just like already there where we in the U.S. here, we have the grid of property ownership that is plopped down on a non-gridded landscape. And I consider this the fundamental flaw of our civilization is that we have a non-gridded, a gridded property division that has no correspondence to the natural boundaries of the landscape, the ridges, the hills, the mountains, the rivers, right? And it's like, you know, how do we get around this, right? Because like land management goes along these arbitrary boundaries. And, you know, we, I have a whole video called America's Big Mistake it's when we basically blew our chance when um, John Wesley Powell was sent by uh, um, what was the general? You know, he was basically sent to go survey the arid West and and tell how are we going to settle these new manifest destiny lands that we now are you know, declaring ownership over basically. 
and how are we going to settle these lands? So John Wesley Powell, that like Lake Powell's named after him and everything. Um, he was a very interesting dude. And he came and it became very obvi obvious to him that in the arid West, we actually need to make political boundaries, uh, the watershed boundaries. And so he came up with this whole concept of watershed democracy, this whole map that's really cool. Just You can just Google John Wesley Powell watershed map or something like that, or watershed democracy map. And he actually came up with having the states divided on watershed basins. And then the counties, each county within a state also would be a watershed county. And there would be rules against transferring water into basin transfer. So basically it was like, it was this sort of ideal bioregional where where the political decisions of a bioregion were directly corresponded to the hydrologic unit of the watershed right so there was a wonderful chance that we that we blew because the railroad companies actually lobbied against that because the railroad companies wanted you know the the grid that was superimposed on the land um it it is very conducive to commodification of the land and that's what there was heavy interests that wanted the com the easy commodification of the land so anyway that was a major that was a major turning point where things could have gone a different direction um another thing i'll mention is like a lot of these villages that i'm going to i mean they are old old villages mm -hmm. and nobody even knows how old these villages are like this one village i went to i'm like how old do you think this village is they're like we have no idea how old this village is what we do know is that this banyan tree right here was mentioned in some texts 500 years ago yeah. like that's that's yeah. the you know yeah. so i mean so so for these people as far back as they can imagine their ancestors lived in this village and as far forward as they can imagine their descendants will live in this village. So they feel like their changes are permanent, right? That's like the feeling. There's this intrinsic stability. Like when we are restoring our landscape, when we're like putting all of this enormous effort into building this pond, into building these water collection uh, structures, into reforesting this hillside, that this is like a permanent change that will, that will forever benefit our descendants. Where here... I mean, think about the turnover. How many people do you know, even farmers that you know, that 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 have a continuum, that have like the a legacy where like they're like, my children are gonna take over the farm and then their children are gonna take over that. I mean, there's certainly a lot out there. There's family farms, there's places where it's stable, but it's not a high percentage. You know, the, the amount of people, and I mean, I do design work for people, you're designing for people and you're like, okay, let's see, you're like 62 years old. Like, what is your succession plan for this farm? Like, are we just designing for you for the next, you know, 10 to 20 years before you have to go? I mean, I'm, I'm less interested in properties and projects that don't have some sort of succession plan because it's just it's like a splash in the pan and then the next owners can get that and they can just undo what you did you know that that there's there's that lack of stability right yeah 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 well you mentioned the the term commod you know the gridded landscape was easily commodifiable and that's my sense of permaculture generally is that 
it's a system that can be abundant, but it's not easily commodifiable. Um, it's not really conducive to commodity, kind of monoculturalist commodity production that is profitable in the current incentive landscape. Um, and so, you know, part of when we're thinking about lands, you know, permaculture design, part of it is, you know, the long term, part of it is connecting across scales. Uh, but part of it is also kind of how we think about economics. You know, it's really kind of a pretty revolutionary set of ideas if you think about it. Um, and do, do you find, um, I don't know, I, I guess, are, are you seeing sources of, of hope along those lines, either within the permaculture community or or, or more broadly, that's kind of the, the economics uh, side of, of permaculture, like people are kind of understanding this, you know, that yeah you don't really get into permaculture to get rich uh you do it to you know to you, i mean maybe you can but it, it seems like you really do it because you want to create a a functional place and landscape and community yeah i mean there's examples of people out there that are actually making money from their permaculture farm and i mean i hold up my friend don tipping all the time as a like shining example um, I've done videos and stuff of his place. He's down in Williams, Oregon. Um, Siskiyou Seeds is his company. And I mean, he rocks it, right? Because he is a master seed breeder and is, you know, he is a he is the master of every the growing, harvesting, processing, everything like that. And he's got a successful seed company. They ship, they ship seeds all over the place. Um and so this was actually a question I had yesterday too, is like, like, like permaculture is encouraging this hyper diversity, mm. but uh, it seems like the places that are financially successful are really focusing on a particular yield that is their main cash crop. So for Siskiyou Seeds, their main thing is it's a seed company, but if you go to the site, it's incredibly diverse. They're harvesting all sorts of things. They're taking it to the farmer's market. But they're but they're still focused on it on the economic engine. Um, you know, there's other farms uh, like, you know, the key line design system is another system that's developed in Australia. And there's a lot of like overlaps with permaculture. But there's a lot of people using that system that are OK, they're growing pastured poultry. You know, that's their main output. That's their economic engine. And they have these diverse agroforestry systems and you know, other diverse livestock types and all these other things going on. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So, so you're kind of saying it's possible um, if you kind of focus on one cash crop, but, but, but not exclusively that. Um, yeah. 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 So, so it sense like in permaculture, when we're teaching a class, if you're doing a homestead and you're talking about survival gardening, mm -hmm. we're like, Hey, you know, hedge your bets have at least 20 different crops that are providing 5% of your diet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that way, if you have a crop failure in one part and you, you something else is going to have a bumper crop, then your, 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 that diversity becomes your resilience. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're really needing to make a living, if this is your economic livelihood, then I would say in, in the same way we say a, a permaculture guild, we talk about an association of plants as a guild. And one part of the guild is the central element. So the different pieces of the guild are there to support one particular element. So it might be like you have a fruit tree 
And then you have this different understory of beneficial plants under the fruit tree, but still everything is geared towards supporting the fruit tree primarily, and then everything else is secondary. So I'd say you could sort of apply that same logic to a farm where you would say, okay, you're going to have this whole diverse system, but still you're going to have a particular thing that's your bread and butter, you know, that you really like focus your energy, your, the, your energy of your system on creating a surplus in that particular vein. Now I want to say one little side thing here, because I just, I was in Senegal for the month of September. I was looking at objects there. Um, I was invited by an organization and did some videos that I'm currently um, doing editing on. I might even have one out before this comes out. Um, and I, I did it. I did a video and I, I visited, I spent about four or five days looking at the work of an organization called Trees for the Future that is basically taking farmers who have, they might have 10 hectares of, you know, sorghum or millet or peanuts or something like that. So they're, they're like, they're like rainy season cash crop, you know, uh, annual monoculture farmers for the most part, not chemical. Cause I mean, it's really basic, but it's like millet, you know, on 10 acres. I mean, they've had herds of animals, but they get the rainy season, the rainy season fails, they're screwed basically. Right. So what this organization is doing is they were there, they are getting these farmers to take some portion of their land. It might be a quarter acre. It might be one acre, maybe two, you know, one hectare, but a small portion of their farm. And they're converting that into diverse multi-storied food forests, permaculture food forests. And uh, so it ends up serving as a shock absorber to crop failure, anything like that, where instead of having this one yield of millet that it's like, you know, all or nothing, they've got lemon trees, they've got mango trees, they've got papayas, they've got chickens in this system. It's like what you picture the tropical food forest. I mean, these, these food forests are gorgeous and you know, some of the ones I went to, the oldest ones are like eight years old. That's when they started doing this. I mean, eight-year-old tropical food forest mm -hmm. uh, in that climate where it gets pretty decent rainfall in some of the areas I was in. I mean, it's very lush. Mm -hmm. It is very productive. The trees are big. I mean, stuff is really mature, um, even, even at eight years in the tropics like that. And so um, that is a really, it's a really in that particular context, but you could translate that context like as a buffer from the potential losses that you can have in a monoculture. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like creating a little lifeboat on a farm that will help you get through. Um, you know, we we talk about the risks of monoculture, basically crop failure, you know, due to insect plague or climate or you know in this day and age right fertilizer shortage all of a sudden you know you're not getting your fertilizer shipment from russia as you're down the list whatever and someone else is is getting it first and then the productivity is going down it's like i think that that's a really uh, that's a great application a way that permaculture can actually be integrated into monoculture farms or industrial farms and serve a, a particular purpose um but you're still kind of keeping your cash flow going that you're expecting yeah
So I have a question. When I first started learning about our food system, you know, the nature of it, how many chemicals were being used, and then of course what's going on in animal agriculture, that is what drove me to start producing food. And a long time ago, there were so many more people on the land. And do you think with the work that you've done, and even in the time that you've been involved, are you hopeful about a future here in, a, in the States where more people want to be involved in food production? And would it be enough people to, to do it? Because, you know, you go back to the 1800s and it was something like 90% of people were involved in food production. And then it was about 60% 100 years ago. And now down to one or two percent. I mean, it's really low now. So I, this is something I think about a lot, and something that's discouraging to me as I as I'm always trying to evangelize people to grow food. Is a lot of people just don't want to do it, and because they've lived in very abundant, prosperous situations, and they've never had to worry about feeding themselves. The food is always at the store. They've never really been in a position where they had to work hard and when you the india project what struck me was how all those people were willing to use their physical you know bodies to get out there and help each other and i just wonder you know are people in a place here where they would be willing to come together and do these kinds of projects or do you think it will have to be after some kind of breakdown of the food system or what do you think it will take for people to return to the land in the numbers that are probably necessary to escape this really extractive, poisonous um, agricultural system that we've built up here. Yeah. Well, uh, first off, like, let's get rid of the phones. That would help. <laughs> <laughs> we just get bored enough, right? We'd have like, bored enough to bored. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's definitely some, you know, when you look at a place like India, there's definitely a major demographic difference between there and here, for instance. I mean, there are a lot of people, you know, so there's a lot of hands to do, to, to do work. It's, it's kind of ironic in a way for me that in the U S there's so much of a, um, like political, opposition in some circles to immigration and at the same time there's like a shortage of people I, I mean to actually pull off like the people the population in the u.s growing the food we need going back to the land i mean it takes a lot of people so you either have to have i mean you have to have people like leaving the cities you have to have a redevelopment of rural areas because in a low energy future, transport is also not like you're not commuting an hour to get to your farming job or something like that. I mean, that was one thing actually it struck me in uh, in Senegal was, you know, we went really back back roads to these villages to look and see these different projects. So you know, with this organization, we went on and we we're like on these little tracks going through and we get to some village and there's like i'd say like i'm like oh there's one it looks like there's one car in this village or no cars like like and then there's people everybody's getting a lot around on donkey carts basically 
And, you know, I look in the map, I'm like, okay, there's a village here. And then the village looks like, oh, like, th you know, three kilometers away, there's this other village. And there are oh, these people are getting, there's this little track and they're getting from this village to that village on a donkey cart, or you see people walking. I was like, there is not a lot of mass transportation going on here. So, I mean, that is another part that we have to consider, you know, in, in Oregon, we have strict zoning laws, strict anti-sprawl laws. I like that fact where basically each urban area has an urban growth boundary around it. And then once you leave that line, you're basically in an exclusive farm use zoning type where it's one house per 80 acres. So in the same way that it's stopping sprawl from happening and stopping farmland getting eaten up by development, it's also inhibiting having like a, a more reasonable distribution of people in the land. So a reasonable distribution, when I, when I look at a place, places in India, you look at like the distribution of, although there's a lot more motorized transport in India than in rural Senegal, for sure, big time. But you look at the distribution of villages, how far are these villages from each other? Because these are ancient patterns. And then, so how much land is each village? How many people are taking care of how much land in proximity to a village center, you know? And so that starts to give you an idea of like how many people do you actually need to manage if you're talking about a low energy future where we don't have because fossil fuels, I mean, they allow very few people to manage a great amount of land. The uh, so grass seed farmers would be really very familiar, Jason, with grass seed farms here in the Willamette Valley. I once talked to a grass seed farmer and he was telling me. I was asking him about like, what's the average size of a grass seed farm that a family is managing that's basically supporting a family? So a grass seed farmer, at least when I when I had this conversation, it was probably 10 years ago, um, a grass seed farmer <clears throat> is basically growing about 1,400 acres of grass seed to support their family, right? And that's basically like an income. So it's like, wow, one family on 1400 acres you know and then you look at a village of like 2000 people in india is managing a land total landscape of maybe a thousand hectares which is like 2500 acres now a lot of that is not necessarily like agricultural land that might include you know hill the water hills the watershed so say you know say 1500 say you know 1500 acres you might have in an Indian village, you might have 2,000 people managing 1,400 acres of agricultural land by hand, you know? So, I mean, the whole demographics really shift when you look at actually having people spread out on the land in proportion to what it would take in a low energy future where we don't have the, the fossil fuel subsidy, you know, of, of work. So... Yeah. And like getting people to want to work hard. I mean, you have to look at the economics of it. You know, for me, I'm like, I mean, I grow certain things in my yard. Some things I'm like, nah, I don't, it's like, don't grow lettuce. I'm, I'm like, not, I'm not like a attentive enough gardener to grow like something that needs, you know, daily maintenance. I'm a little more like garlic and potatoes and I mean, like, right. <laughs> easy stuff. I got to do the easy stuff. Right. 
for the most part. But, um, but you know, like, like I work too. I'll go to the store and I buy stuff. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. It's a hard sell when you can go to the store and you can buy basically any fruit from all over the planet. I can buy pears from Argentina and, you know, in February or whatever. So, I mean, I don't really, I, I think that in industrialized society to actually get people to want to grow their food and, you know, interact with the land. I feel like the, the angle of how it improves your physical and mental well-being is probably more of a selling point than you need to grow food because the apocalypse is coming or something, or, you know, because like this imminent <laughs> danger, I think more people are turned on by the health benefits. And I mean, like just the therapy mm -hmm. of, growing gardens and you know and diverse permaculture systems it's just like a fulfilling activity so i think that's kind of like probably a, a more reasonable angle to actually convince people people i think people people are more moved by inspiration to better themselves when you come in with like like the optimism part when you come in with the doomer part um i think that people are more apt to just shut down because it's too overwhelming yeah. I agree. I definitely agree. I've definitely seen that. It's better to <laughs> show them the beautiful things about it or share the positive things about it, kind of get them on board that way, for sure. Yeah, it seems I agree as well. In the status quo kind of modern industrial society where we have all this energy availability and uh, the environmental consequences haven't quite caught up with us, you know, in, in a very visceral sense yet. Um, you know, I also think about kind of theory of change of, you know, you know, so so the theory of change, uh, it seems to be expressed is that, you know, right now trying to encourage people because of all the positive benefits will get a certain population on on board and interested and, and hopefully it's enough that it builds up kind of the skill sets um, that, you know, if and when more and more people realize the necessity from more of the doomer end there's lots of people who can support them and help get them trained up and things of that nature and so i i see a future role for a lot of educational institutions and then i also see a role for things like thinking about access to land right and that's another thing even among you know people who are totally on board with permaculture and homesteading and they can't afford to to get a few acres or whatever um especially in today's real estate markets. Um, and I'm, I know that like the agroecology movement uh, it focuses a lot on like land reform and or like developing community land trusts to make land accessible. Um, I haven't seen as much discussion in uh, about that in the permaculture world. And I'm, I'm curious what you think about kind of both the kind of the educational institutions that we'll need, but also, you know, how do we make assuming that the desire is there either just because people in mass fall in love or people suddenly feel vulnerable in the current system you know to, to make it accessible one way or the other whatever kind of land tenure legal you know arrangement we you know we come up with yeah i mean i i know that buying land can be an absolute impossibility for so many people now. I mean, the prices and the economy is so screwy. And, you know, we, we always see all these articles about how 
millennials and such, you know, will never be able to buy property and the difference now between income and, you know, uh, between people's average income and the average land price and stuff. But at the same time, I don't think that that really, I don't think that that means that people don't have access to land. I know, I mean, I have a lot of students that go through my program um, you know, people like I'm teaching on campus at Oregon State University. Um, I teach in the fall and I have a lot of students that come through that are ag students or students, they have family farms or whatever. And I've seen a lot of my students get access to land in some way, because at least, I mean, there's a lot of land, right? Because the land is being utilized at a very marginal level, like, like, like I said, the 1400 acres of grass seed farming kind of thing. It's like, it's like we have a lot of space that is not being used intensively. Right. And if people adopted permaculture, they wouldn't plant so much grass and there'd be less demand for grass seeds. So we use that land for, for, for yeah, yeah. Or someone has 1400 acres. And I mean, there's so many, I guess my point is there's so many aging farmers out there. Yeah. There's, there's, there's so, I mean, I don't, I can't like rattle off the statistics right now, but the amount of aging farmers that do not have some sort of legacy to pass on. And then are they being eaten up by agribusiness? You know, um, I've definitely known people who have developed some relationship with some older people and they have access to land, like, like renting land in the Willamette Valley here. I mean, it's cheap. Mm. Cheap because people, um, even ir- even irrigated land, it's just not like if you actually are like 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 leasing. I mean, so many farmers just lease now. I have a farm that I'm working with quite a bit right outside, actually right outside between here and Philomath. Um, Jason Bradford's Confluence Farm, and he's done kind of like the Bill Mollison. Uh, what do you call it? The Common Works method where he's divided his farm up and he's like, okay, this is pasture. We've got this pasture managed. I'm going to get a livestock person here. I'm going to offer this land to them for very cheap, you know, for a a good rent. And then that person is going to run livestock here. And I'm going to rotate them through my agricultural fields over here. And now we have one of my former students now is coming and she's, she's putting her nursery there. Mm -hmm. Right. And now, and he has his farm section, he's got a CSA and there's another person that's doing seed crops this is a 112 acre farm. Yeah. Um, but there are, I mean, how many producers are doing something there? It's there's like maybe five different people that have their own operations, but he is kind of organizing the the um like system dynamics of oh, how are animals being moved and how's irrigation going in and who's weeding here and there, you know, the common spaces and people have their private spaces. So I mean, there's a lot of models like that where you have there are people out there that just have a lot of land. And they really would like to see something good happen. I mean, I think if you're a motivated person, you can find some sort of relationship like that, you know, and you can sign long-term leases, you know, you can sign 10-year leases, 20-year leases. It's when you want to get into tree crops that it gets difficult. I have another former student who he, uh, he does have a long-term arrangement with a landowner. And I just heard, he's just told me that landowner is actually selling but he's writing it into the sales thing that he's still, what is he, what he's, maybe he's got 10 acres or so that he's got his orchard planted on. My friend, 
my former student planted this orchard of he's, he's like an heirloom fruit tree um uh collector you know and so he's got his whole collection there and he's selling apples for cider and all this stuff and yeah he made a long-term lease arrangement with this person but yeah it gets more challenging when you're talking about long-term perennials basically so you have to have a long-term agreement then with somebody and right. feel secure about that. yeah so it seems like there's kind of like once you get kind of a critical mass and i think i think the willamette valley especially corvallis area seems to have a little bit of that critical mass where you can start finding these kind of symbiotic relationships i'm curious roxanne if you what you're seeing where you live in terms of other people who are interested in permaculture or regenerative agriculture, um, if you're seeing these kind of these kinds of relationships of where, like where different people can kind of plug in, um, yeah. How are you? I'm curious about your area. How you're how you're seeing that? Well, I would like to be seeing it even more, but mm -hmm. I do know of. A relationship that came about that is sort of exactly what Andrew was saying. There was a a friend. Well, she became a friend after she moved here. We ended up working on the same project together. We were both writing for this project that was happening, but she moved here to work at the university and she had no experience in ag, no background in ag, but became interested in it after she moved out here and just started hanging around these people that have a cow and a sheep operation and she kind of fell in love with all of it. They had no succession plan because none of their children were interested and she's probably going to be the one that takes over the whole operation, you know, and that was really just from hanging around mm -hmm. for a few years. I don't know what their, what their, um, exactly what it looks like, you know, what will that mean for her land wise? But I mean, she will become a partner in their business and then maybe even take it over eventually. So I think Andrew's right. And I tell people that too, that if they're, they are very interested in growing food or raising animals that just to ask people, you know, if there's land that's sitting empty near you, find out who owns it, call them. A lot of people especially if you make improvements to the land, you say, you know, I'd like to raise some sheep. Could I put some fence on your property and put my sheep there to graze? A lot of people, you know, fence is expensive and they would, they would definitely allow you to graze there, especially if you made improvements. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are all kinds of, all kinds of ways that you can work that out. I think things have become so transactional in our culture. And so based on, I'm going to give you X amount of dollars and I get X and now I own this. And that's kind of the way that people want to work. But I think a lot of these things can come about relationally. And also what Andrew said is totally true. There's so much land that's about to change hands yeah. in the next 10 to 15 years. A lot of these older farmers, their children have moved away. They went to college and they don't want to come back. And in a, in a lot of cases too, these these people are farming the land in a way that they were told would be better. Um, but they're, you know, raising hundreds of acres of corn or they're doing these kinds of things. And maybe their kids weren't interested in doing that because the relationship with the land wasn't there as much. Um, because, you know, I could see how 
doing things in that way, you know, just like we're now we're going to put our corn seed in the ground for 500 acres and now we're going to spray chemicals on it. You know, that's not really the same relationship you have with the land as when you get to just go out into the garden or plant fruit trees or that kind of thing, the kind of things that I'm trying to expose my kids to growing up. I think you have to teach the kids to love it, to make them want to stick around. Mm. Um, so our, our goal is that, that they stick around. What I, my husband and I have been talking lately about ways, cause we don't have a lot of land, but there is definitely, you know, we could take an acre or two and put it into practice for the community, but kind of the best way to do that. Andrew, do you have any insight there? I mean, what kinds of programs do you think are the best? I mean, is it best to bring people out for classes or do you just say we've thought about letting people just come plant there or, you know, people who say that, Hey, I would like to grow my own food, but I live in an apartment and there's not like, there's not like an allotment system set up here where people can go rent a space and grow things. You know, do you know anything about, putting those kinds of things into practice for people who might have land and would want to offer it back to their community in some way. Yeah. Well, I want to say something about that, but I want to, there was one other thing I wanted to mention when you're talking about the fencing, just kind of back to the other question, then I'll answer that question is um, portable infrastructure. I mean, portable electric fencing, portable chicken housing, mobile chicken housing, you know, mobile animal housing, tiny houses. I mean, you can literally have like, you know, mo movable uh, hoop houses and things like that. I mean, you can have, you could, you could focus a farm infrastructure on movable infrastructure where you can go, you can set up somewhere. You could even have like certain perennial things that you carry around in big pots. I mean, certainly people move from, you know, apartment to apartment or house to house and bring lots of plants with them. But that's just another way that someone could actually invest. Like I can't invest in land, but they can invest in portable infrastructure where they would easily jump around from different properties. So that was just one thing from the last thing. But then um, I have some neighbors right down the street. They have an acre and a quarter. It's right in town. Um, and they took a permaculture class. They're into permaculture. And they actually have a private community garden. So they have, they took about, because it's still an acre and a quarter is a lot of ground to yeah. intensively manage and they're getting a little bit older. So they created this, um, this private community garden where they list it and people come and they basically apply for a garden plot with them. They provide irrigation they give them a garden plot and a lot of neighbors around here and people who don't have, you know, people live in apartments or people that don't have like a lot of sunny space have plots over there. Um, and like I have a neighbor down, down, further down the block who has a very shady yard and they grow lots of herbs and things like that. So they have one of those community plots over there and they just like grow their potatoes. I mean, they grow their field crops over there. Um, and so, you know, I think that um, having plots, but then of course, if you are controlling the situation, then you need to have agreements, you know, because I know that they've had people, Oh, that person sort of flaked out. And then, they then weeds started growing there and once the weeds get to a certain point it's very difficult to get the the plot back to you know a state where you could grow a good garden easily so um yeah but i think that i think that coming up with your own particular parameters and then i mean community you know i live in a town but there's a lot of people that live in apartments here mm -hmm. 
So community gardens tend to be pretty full around me. I mean, I just bike by and they, they don't look vacant. They look pretty active in the summertime because so many people just don't have in, in any place you have like a mixed, mixed level of development where you have apartments and stuff like that. I mean, people, a lot of people just want to grow a small garden. Um, I don't know how close, I think, I don't know how close you are to town. So that's about 15 minutes. So it's not super close, but it's also not super far away. It, yeah. I think as long as it's still, uh, we still live in a time when people are commuting to work yeah. and things like that. I don't, I wonder sometimes how much, longer it will be <laughs> uh, because yeah. you know fuel could just get to a place where people can't afford it you know yeah. but right now time is the more is a limited commodity mm -hmm. my friend jason who i was talking about with you know he has all these he has this farm right outside of town here um i was just talking to him today and he was saying that he was thinking of maybe trying to get a a create a farming club, a growing club where maybe five people were part of the club and everybody was sort of collectively growing this plot. And then they were splitting the yields and they had some sort of way of having some equity of, of the amount of time and energy that they were spending on the, the thing. And so, you know, it's a lot for maybe one person to go manage an acre, but maybe there was, you, you could potentially facilitate a club that would go in and grow, you know, and, and everybody in the club, you can be like, okay, I love potatoes. I love asparagus. Well, that's a little bit more of an investment, but you know, maybe you want to put in a big asparagus bed. Um, so yeah, I think that's one, I think tapping into the cooperative nature of people is yeah. it's, it's an untapped resource in our society that has many other beneficial effects when you start to have people cooperate. I think you're right. And it's fun to get out there and work with other people. And I think for some personalities too, it really brings out the best in them. You know, some people work harder when there's other people around or when there's accountability involved. Well, you know, I don't feel like doing it today, but I told so-and-so I would come and it's easier to show up, you know, when you know people are depending on you. For sure. I'm a wild that that you're friends with Jason Bradford. Um, he's also been influential for me. Uh, his his report, "The Future Is Rural," uh, I found I found really helpful. Uh, also, his podcast. So the fact that both you are in Corvallis and my mom and stepdad live there as well, it's just kind of wild to me. It's just a side note. Um, well, come visit. Yeah. Well, I, I will be back. I will be back. <laughs> I've been thinking of going to visit um, in the next year, and I'd love to. I know you're busy, but. I'd love to to catch you and buy you a coffee yeah. or something. But um, I'm always happy to entertain guests. Nice. Um, well, I, you get a lot of questions, I'm sure, and I know we've asked some of our questions. Our questions you've gone recently. Uh, are there questions or things like 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 something that's kind of uh, really exciting for you that you're thinking about or kind of working through in your thought process? Um, that could be formulated in a question that I could ask if I knew what that was, um, but you would want somebody to ask you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, the other thing that's, that's been happening that happened with me recently, that's really something, it's sort of like a, a, a dream fulfilled. And I hope that it opens up more possibilities is I, um, I went, when I was in Senegal, I went with the world food program, their 
resilience. They have a resilience wing. Uh, the World Food Program is actually the largest. Uh, it's the largest organization within the United Nations. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are the ones who are basically delivering emergency food all over the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are also doing uh, food resilience. And so I, because I, I was invited by this organization to go visit the trees for the future projects, but I was like, well, I'm not, that was like a five day thing. And I said, you know, I'm not going all the way to West Africa for five days. That's ridiculous. So I got in touch with one of my colleagues, Natalie Topa. I don't know if you've heard of Natalie Topa. She mm-hmm. is really into permaculture and she was working for a long time for the Danish refugee council um, in, uh, she was, she's based in, um, in Nairobi and she recently started working for the world food program. So I got in touch with her cause I was, I'm like seeing things that she's posting about these large, like land restoration projects. And so she hooked me up with the WFP and I went with them and I filmed a couple of their projects. Um, and I mean, first off the, one of the things that just, it's just so like it's my dream that the United Nations is a restoration or an organization that's taking the helm of land restoration mm. on the planet. Right. Mm. That's just like, that's the highest thing is like, you know, I mean, some people are like have stuff against the UN. I'm like, I don't know, but it's the closest thing we have to some mm. sort of body of the world. So the fact that they are, that they have people within that organization that are doing cutting edge ecological work and resilient food system work is super exciting to me. So we went to um, the border between Senegal and Mauritania, right? Which is, um, so Senegal is the westernmost country of the entire continent of Africa, mm-hmm. right? So it's right there and it's right, it's, the you know north of senegal is the sahara desert mm. and then you know south of senegal is the rainforest so mm. you know the whole the whole latitudinal range of senegal goes from sahara to basically to the rainforest mm. so um so they're part of the whole great green wall of africa where they're planting or there's you know this vision to plant this belt of trees across the entire southern um, border of the Sahara Desert in order to stop. The Sahara Desert's expanded 10% in the last 100 years. Yeah. Mm. That's huge. I mean, when you look at the size of the Sahara Desert, it's a map, you know, you could fit the United States in there like more than once. I don't know. I've seen those maps before. So, um, <clears throat> so the WFP is doing all of this land restoration work there in that Sahel zone at the base of the Sahara desert. And, um, this, uh, this one guy, um, he's a Brazilian guy, his name's Sebastian Mueller. And he is, uh, he got the WFP connected with Brazilians doing syntropic agriculture. So I don't know if you've heard much about syntropic agriculture, Ernst Goch. It's, um, it's like, and it's a specific system of agroforestry. And it's got its own techniques and sciences and all these things. Uh, and they've done a lot of experimenting in Brazil. There's, it's, a, it's a huge movement in Brazil. 
And they've been spreading it around the world. I ran into it for the first time in Mexico City when I was visiting the Chinampas there. They were doing centrovic agriculture. And the same teacher that they had in Mexico City was actually the same teacher that they had in Senegal that WFP brought from his name's this guy Namaste. He's apparently a prolific world teacher uh, of centrovic agriculture. So um, we visited their project. They had a 30 hectare project. So hectare is about two and a half acres. So it's about, about 75 acre uh, project there where they took this super barren compacted landscape mm. uh, and they did their, they carve all of these little half moons. They look like scales and they carve the whole landscape into these scales. You might've seen pictures of that. I think I've seen pictures of that. Yeah. 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 So they really, do. Really they wild. have yeah, they have people, they have like incentive where they incentivize the villagers, they pay the villagers or they give them land there. Why the half moons, just real briefly, why that Why that shape and, and, the, and very small and a bunch of them versus like large swales or something? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. I think that um, it has to do with like, what can a person do in a day? What, like a quantifiable, I didn't ask that question, but this is my guess. So the half moons are like these little water harvesting crescents, basically. And so they're planting in the base of this crescent shape. And then the rest is, you know, then the berm is surrounding it and they have them positioned very close to each other, like scales. So water basically doesn't run across the landscape because it's like, it's like you're, you're like pockmarking the entire landscape in this pattern. Um, yeah. What, you know, would they be better served to do uh, swales across the landscape? I mean, that's an interesting question. I think that <clears throat> it might be that this is just a little more foolproof, hmm. right? Because swales, the place where swales go wrong is when swales, when you have a, what we think of as the permaculture swale and you got your base and you got your berm, and, you've, and the water is actually building up against the berm, and then you have your overflow. Mm -hmm. And the point of failure is typically the overflow. The overflow gets blown out, mm -hmm. right? It's not armored well. Also, you have burrowing animals, like you have gophers or something like that that compromise a swale, and suddenly you have another place where the water's just spilling out. So in a, in a sense, the permaculture swale, people think of the on contour swale, is actually kind of a high-maintenance mm -hmm. um unit because there's there's that one failure point with the overflow and then there's the comp being it being compromised by a great many different things and so like it's an often made with large machinery as well if it's a large large swale and so this year yeah. because it's more labor intensive less access i'm guessing less access to that kind of machinery and diesel yeah. that it's it's working around so it's you're saying it's more resilient there's many more uh, you know many like fewer points of failure i guess because you just have so many yeah. and it's just practical this is, it seems like you could just teach a bunch of villagers how to build one of these things and then you could just have them repeat it whereas if you're engineering a swale you've got to be measuring contour across a large portion of the landscape you got to have your overflow and then over time if you have herds of animals moving through there they could be compromising the top of the swale I'll just say, you know, without like getting too geeky into like water harvesting technical stuff in all these projects in, I'm visiting in India, I get the same question because they're, they're building these, what they call continuous contour trenches, CCTs, right. mm -hmm. where they are, and people are like, well, 
you said they're, you know, you can see my, watch my India videos. You'll see these diagrams. I mean, where they're like digging these holes, but the overflow from these trenches, they're not all connected. They're staggered. The overflow is flowing along the, on the ground surface itself. Mm-hmm. And I've get comments, people like, why aren't you using the berms to bring up the, the water height more? And you could have more water building up in that water harvesting structure, more water infiltrating. Well, and it's because there's so many more points of failure when you're using the berm to hold back water, basically. Mm -hmm. And if you're talking about training, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people to go out and do this, you need a really simple unit that there's not like single points of failure throughout Mm -hmm. the system, basically. So, okay. So back to the WFP for a second. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so they're building these integrated food land restoration systems and they have people in there that are really like tuned in they've studied permaculture they study regenerative agriculture they studied syntropic agriculture they studied land restoration you know they're bringing in plants these brazilian guys came and brought in all these different species from brazil that would do well um like like it's super inspiring to me to know that there are people that are really tuned into into this stuff that are in some of these high level organizations and that are beginning to like introduce this stuff at that level, because yeah, I feel, I'm just like, you know, so, so I'm, I'm like, I really want to do a good job with the videos I do for the WFP because I would like to go visit more WFP projects, Mm. you know? And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's interesting. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting that, you know, oftentimes in the permaculture world, there's a lot of emphasis on kind of grassroots and ground up. And, and this is kind of like if a big global organization got on board, there's potential downsides to that if, if it's, you know, if it's not paying attention to local context. But at the same time, there are benefits to, you know, to, I wouldn't say it's top down, but it's, it's more of like, it, it's nice if the major institutions of the world are not actively working against uh, permacultural ideas and, and they're actually on board and maybe they're not perfect. Uh, and hopefully they allow for local, you know, autonomy and decision-making, but it's, it, yeah. you know, it, it, it's, it, I find it hopeful as well, personally. I would say though, in these cases that I've visited, I mean, they are pretty tuned into the local context. Yeah. I mean, they have buy-in. I mean, well, actually I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little story. Um, this one, one of the things they paid for is fencing this mm. area. This is, I mean, the great, they call it the transhumans which is like the migration, the like historic migration of animals, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's the general word transhumans is basically like, like long-term migrations of animal and people. But here you have from the Sahara with the rains, you have people, herders coming down. We, we saw, we met herders that had crossed the Senegal river from Mauritania with their camels. And you have like, I never seen so many animals. I mean, I've seen a lot of animals in India, I could not believe how many herds of animals you see in the Sahel there right now after the rain. But um, they put up these fences to uh, of this 30 hectares, and then they have the buy-in of the villages around, um, and they basically give them plots of land, and then I guess they subsidize them in order to have these people start to grow some of their food in the project. So they're like incentivizing the, the local people and you know improving their lives but there was there was some group of people that they did not invite into the project it was a herder community that they had somehow missed and did not invite them in the project 
Well, the herder community came and just, instead of like raising their hand, whatever, they just sent a little message where they, they clipped the fence one day. The animals came in, there was a lot of destruction, you know, whatever. Okay. Then they, they got the herder community in on it. Okay. Well, here you got some land. That was how, you know, so they're very, they understand the delicate nature of working with communities. So even though there's like this top-down aspect, it's very clear that if you don't have buy-in and like harmony with the communities there, then that's the kind of thing that like your project will fail because someone can come just like, this is not harmonious with going on, clip, clip. Okay, right. now you right. got the message, you know? Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, and, go ahead. Well, Andrew, I wanted to ask because you know, there is a lot of talk and a lot of times it's by people who are, um, you know, their job is to do policy or politics or that kind of thing about, you know, how can we fix agriculture in California, for example? And I think my frustration when I hear these people talk sometimes is that it's not more people like you who have your experience with the land, who know about how water works, all that kind of stuff. So I know it's probably a very long answer, but, you know, short answer, if somebody said, um, hey, how, what's the best way to move forward with ag here in the United States or in California in specific, because that is so, so much food is grown there was, and the water is really becoming an issue. What, what is your, you know, short answer, a fix that you would see? Like I said, whenever I hear people talk about that kind of stuff, I'm like, you know who needs to be talking about water is Andrew Millison. And so, yeah, I just want to hear what you have to say about that. And then as far also because there's so many fires in that part of the country as well. I mean, is it, and a lot of people are just saying climate change, but um, land management, I mean, could there be better land management, better water management in your opinion? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess the question is sort of like, an everything question in a way I'm right sorry. yeah no, 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 it's okay it's okay yeah so i'll just have to <laughs> yeah i'll have to break it down um so you know for sure like aquifer recharge in the uh central valley of california i mean that's a huge thing i actually did a whole podcast interview with um a guy in the central Valley. And we, we looked at Google earth maps and we just like looked at the place that this, that this person's community was located in and looked at all the different potentials for harvesting water and soaking into the ground on these hillsides. So, I mean, all of the same landscape scale, um, uh, treatments that they did in these Indian villages, you could be doing it in all of the foothills of, um, you know, the, the central Valley in California, I mean, yes. basically get the water soaking in on the slopes, recharging the aquifers. Now they have a huge problem there. Um, this was brought up to me in this podcast conversation that I had, which is that there are, you know, corporate tree fruit farmers that are coming in, um, that, you know, are basically, not owned by residents. It's, you know, investment firms in New York city and this and that, that are just pumping the aquifer with no remorse, you know, like, like you've got, 
you've got bad actors in there that are just pumping and flood irrigating with no uh, real care of the whole hydrologic system. So that's, I mean, I don't know how you overcome that part of it, mm -hmm. right? Because I mean, having a community be like, we're going to fix our water problems is challenging enough, but doable. But having like some people go, we're going to fix our water problems. And other people are like, you know, on a private island in the Mediterranean or whatever, like they're not connected. <laughs> no, the same thing like in, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's the same thing like the, the Saudis growing uh, alfalfa in Southern Arizona. There's all these mm. stories breaking about that. They just are ending these people's leases and stuff. You're like, what do you do when you have um, absentee owners that are doing? So, so that's, I mean, that's its own issue right there. It's absentee corporate owners that are not, don't don't really care about the aquifer but um you know i would say overall some of the same things we see around the world i mean water harvesting throughout the foothills and you know water harvesting structures throughout so the runoff is arrested and soaked into the ground i would say integration of hedgerows into back into the agricultural landscape i mean that is one of the easiest wins is just taking the unused edges of property boundaries and roadways and turning them back into biological reserves, you know, places where suddenly you could actually have like uh, year round populations of pollinators possibly because you have, I mean, it's a very, it's pretty warm down the central Valley. And then you would, you know, that would, that would avoid some of the major shipping of honeybees that you have to have with the almond groves i mean there's so many different things like like some of those are just easy wins right where you know in permaculture we're like utilize the edge and value the marginal well let's start at just the edges and the marginal areas bring those up to a state of biodiversity um of habitat of water retention and then kind of grow from there i mean so that would be sort of how you would start something mm -hmm. like that um you know as far as the fires go i mean yeah, it's really tough because if you look at the projected uh, the projected migration of the Douglas fir range on the west coast of the U.S., for example, right, the Doug fir, it's the tree that you see in the Oregon license plates, the major conifer species here we have, you know, it goes all the way down, you see it in southern Oregon and all the way up, you know, into British Columbia and everything. So um, the Doug fir range, for instance, is projected to be completely north of here by the end of the century, right? Meaning that like the temperature and moisture range will no longer be suitable for the Doug fir tree. You already see when you go down to Southern Oregon and all of the hotter aspects, hotter slopes, you know, south facing, west facing, you see like tremendous tree mortality down there, the, you know, Doug fir. I mean, you already see it happening, the fires down in Southern Oregon, I mean, which is basically synonymous with the fires in California. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the fires that we had here in 2020, I mean, it was, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I just went up and I hadn't been, been to my favorite hot springs, Brighton Bush hot springs. I hadn't been there since before the fires. And I just went up there, uh, like, in the last couple of weeks, my wife and I, and we were like, I knew it was going to be 
I knew I was going into the devastation. I just, I'd been avoiding it for like three years. I mean, the scale, it is, it's mind boggling the scale of the fires. And just from 2020 in Oregon, I mean, we went to this place, Detroit, where Detroit Lake, and it's like a, it's like a, a town that basically the whole town burned down. We stayed in the last like half of a motel that hadn't gotten burned and stuff. And everybody's kind of living in trailers around there and they're rebuilding some. And it's, you're just like, wow. I mean, there's, so there's, so there's a change in temperature and moisture that at this point, there's nothing we can do about that. Right. But there's also just uh, a lack of forest management that is geared towards managing forests for long term for fire. I mean, right now, you can see like basically there's a industrial forest, grow an industrial forest for 30 or 60 years, whatever, then clear cut, you know, and those industrial forests, it's been shown that the burns are so much worse in those industrial forests where there is unbroken tree canopy of all single age species versus this more of like a mosaic of older and younger species with openings and clearings and fire moves differently through those landscapes. So forest management, and also it's been shown to a lot of the like big forest corporations that they can get just as much wood sustainably harvesting over time that doesn't that's not the all, all or nothing clear cut method um and they basically are like yeah that's just too hard you know so so there's a lot better forest management methodologies out there now as far as california goes i mean you know i'm not like i haven't spent a lot of time in the sierras where i could map out the sort of like forest management scheme ecologically like i could to some degree in my mind for um oregon but uh you know there's also just the the fact that like there's a lot of places that are just poorly placed communities i mean you look at really like the towns that have burned down primarily places like paradise like the place you know in, in california the place i just was in detroit here in oregon um you know, they're in valleys, basically. And and when we get the east to west winds, when we get those catabatic winds that are continental, dry continental winds coming over and going, you know, normally we have winds coming from the west to the east, the jet stream, everything like that. But when we get our worst fire winds is when you have continental winds blowing and they're coming over the Sierras and through those canyons or they're coming over the Cascades or through all those canyons or through the Columbia Gorge and basically making their way from you know, the Great Basin Desert, which is most of the West, Western U.S., to, you know, on the other side of the Cascades and the other side of the Sierras. So, I mean, those wind events are, that's, that's like the moment that these fires happen. I think it's wonderful that the utilities were sued so hard that now they're like, yes, we have to shut the power grids down when we have those wind events. They didn't in Lahaina, in Maui. And the, power, and the power poles all just blew over and you had massive fires starting all simultaneously as the power, as all these power lines just came down and, and touched down on the ground. That's what you've had a lot in California and paradise as you had in paradise fire. And now at least the utility companies are like, we're going to shut down the grid when we have a wind event like that. But I mean, there's, there's not an easy answer. And I'll, I'll tell you actually, like, there's nothing that scares the crap out of me more. 
I feel like I'm I'm a little I'm I feel like some a little bit of PTSD from 2020. Like when now, like when we get to the point in August, I start smelling smoke. Like I can get a really sinking feeling. And I'm watching the weather. There was a there was a scare for me this summer when that um that hurricane came up and hit Southern California, right? And they're like, no hurricanes ever hit Southern California like this. And there was all this flooding in the LA basin. And they were saying, well, depending on that trajectory, it could go and displace all of this dry air sitting over the big basin, bring it over through the Cascades and create another massive wind event for us right during fire season. You know, I mean, that's the setup for just like this region-wide catastrophe that we saw in 2020. So, you know. I can, Andrew, I can relate to the PTSD feeling because that was one of the reasons why we moved out of the area. We were up in Mendocino County. Yeah. And about 11 years ago, there was a fire so bad. And it happened right after my second daughter was born. And I couldn't take her outside for the first month of her life. It was raining ash. It was yeah. horrible. And, you know, we could see there was a chance that the fire was going to come closer. Um, you know, it was, we lived in fear for weeks. It was like if the, because uh, at one point we could see flames. And so it was, it was scary. And yeah, I, I wish there was something, I know there's no easy answer, but I do yeah. wish more people like you that had the ecological understanding that you do could be involved in the conversation because I know there's people out there making policy about it. And I just, you know, I wish they yeah. were talking to you. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of smart people really like, yeah. like, I mean, Oregon State University, there's a lot of, like, I've had contact with the, you know, different people that are doing fire management and fire studies. And, and then um, the Permaculture Institute North America did a big project uh, doing like uh, thinning and biochar production. I mean, there's certainly people, a lot of people that are thinking about this stuff. It's just this, the scale is just really, it's kind of overwhelming. Like it needs, it needs a, uh, you know, civilian conservation core level of, um, you know, commitment from the whole government basically to uh, tr try to bring the forests to a state of health and, and make regulations that keep people from like, the type of forestry practices that are more conducive to large scale fires. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of overwhelmed by the whole fire thing, really, honestly. Do you think, because I know even on our own land now, we're not really doing fire management here, but we do do a little forestry management because we have a lot of woods and we use ruminants for that here. I mean, and they, they do a beautiful job of clearing. And I'm just, yep. I, I think that all the time I wonder you know, are they using ruminants anywhere? And do you think that that could even be helpful, you know, to bring, I mean, obviously that would require people on the ground managing these animals, but could they, you know, could they be cleaning up some of the underbrush with goats or something? And I mean, from spent, I'll tell you from spending a lot of time in India and now Africa, I mean, around the world, goats are doing a huge amount of work to like clear out brush in many places. It's, it's way too much, you know, but, um, I mean, you don't see the type of massive fire danger in places that are so peopled and you have so many people that are practicing subsistence agriculture because, uh, like you have so many goats in places like India and, 
in places like Senegal. Um, so yeah, I think that there's a huge role for, um, and, but it's not just like a one-time taking down biomass. Like you have to have a whole sort of industry mm -hmm. raising goats uh, that is simultaneously keeping down biomass around communities. Yeah, it's a big business opportunity. I mean, you, there's like token things like, oh, this person has this, like see some newspaper article about it, you know, but like when you go to places where there are, where you go and you're like, there are way too many goats here. You know, <laughs> I, I've seen a lot of places. I'm like, I cannot believe how many goats there are around. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but there's not a, there's no fire danger either, you know, so, much less than fire danger. So we should probably wrap soon, but Roxanne, you had one more question that you wanted to ask. Well, and don't you guys usually wrap up with something hopeful? Is that something that you ask the guests? Is that? It, it depends. Uh, I think um, it's Ashley, what she usually does sometimes I do, but it's not a, it's not a rule. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say, I saw one of your videos recently, Andrew, that was about the, um, the planting for justice project yeah. and I was just thought it was so great it made me really happy in the the people's lives who were involved in the program so it was this program where people who had been incarcerated then could come out and get a job in a community garden and you know it's hard for people when they've been locked up to come out and get a job especially one that pays a decent wage it's really easy to get back into a life of doing illegal things because that those are the only options available to them and so i was so inspired because these people um there was there were there was so much healing going on you know with them mentally uh the things they'd been through you could tell they were healing from it and then physically some of them talked about their health turning around anyway i didn't know if you wanted to share a little bit about that or it it just really uh, spoke to me out of it it made me happy when i saw it yeah it's called planting justice and it's it's not just a community garden it is a nursery business and they have one of the most extensive collections of plants as well of permaculture plants on the west coast they call themselves, the guy who's saying that they're the largest, you know, permaculture nursery on the West Coast. They inherited this uh, collection from, I think it was called like Rolling River Nursery, a nursery that people retired. I mean, they have like 30 different varieties of pomegranates. And I mean, you know, I guess what I would say is, you know, I'm not going to repeat what you saw in the video because um, people could watch that planting justice. Wait, what do you call it? I don't remember what it's called. Just go to my YouTube channel. Um I'd have to look at what the actual title it was. Of the video. In the, it was one of the more recent ones too, within the last couple of months. So if they look through, right. Wasn't it posted? Yeah, no, I think it was, I think we did it. Um, yeah, I guess we visited in the spring and we probably published it early summer. Okay. Yeah. So um, yeah, we did it. We, we published it pretty quick. I think we still actually published it in the spring, but anyway, um, what I showed you in the video is just a fraction of their, operation and we actually ended up cutting all the other parts out because it was like wait a minute this is this whole one video but i mean they have other properties um where they are basically growing the mother plants for the genetic material for this nursery and they have a, another property right down the road that they are turning into an aquaculture demonstration site where they are going to be 
incubating micro businesses all over the neighborhood of people doing not sorry not aquaculture um um what's it called sorry i'm like blanking it's not hydroponics it's like small scale aquatic production um uh in these like little tanks and containers where you're simultaneously growing fish with vegetables and um I thought that was aquaculture. <laughs> but aquaculture is like more of a, a broader um, thing. Someone right now that's listening to this is like, yeah, it's it, it'll come to me. Um, <laughs> um, it's a uh, it's in like um, aquaponics. That there it is. Aquaponics. It's not aquaculture. It's not hydroponics. It's aquaponics. So there's whole aquaponics incubator program that they're doing, uh, and you know, there's like a lot of polluted, degraded soils there. So aquaponics is something that you can do on top of, uh, of you know, it, everything's happening in a container, basically. So you could do it on concrete. You can do it on a uh, super fun site, you know. So they have this whole aquaponics incubator where they're creating a training center demonstration. They're going to be training youth and people all throughout the neighborhood to make these kind of small scale um, production systems. They are just so active and they have turned around the lives of so many people, their, their recidivism rate, right? The amount of people that are going back to prison, they've had 80 people go through their program that were incarcerated and one person went back to prison ever from their program. So, I mean, they have like proven that the healing power of plants and how you put people and you give them right livelihood that, you know, that they pay them a living wage in their community. People don't go back to jail, you know? So yeah, that's, that was really great. And I, I credit um, the, uh, my other person I work with, his name's Mitchell Davidovitz and he does a lot of the um, videography with me. And he was the one that was like, we got to go there, you know? And so he organized the whole thing. So I'm really thankful for him for making that connection. Yeah. Very cool project. Yeah. Well, that's very hopeful. That's a good optimistic uh, thing to end on. Uh, thank you so much, Andrew, for your time. Uh, you're doing great work. Uh, and yeah, uh, I love this conversation. I think we could we could have talked for hours and hours more, uh, <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully uh, people got a sense of your work and the work that you do with Oregon State. And I encourage people to check it out. Um, go to Oregon State, go to Andrew Millison, YouTube, uh, check out the PDC, and yeah, it's it's great stuff. So thank thank you very much. Andrew, thank, thank you, you, Jason. Yeah, it all was right. Really nice to so meet you Roxanne. like this and talk to you like this. Yeah, I had a so, great time talking to you. Thank you. Too. All right, and come by when you visit your parents, Jason. I will. I will definitely. All right. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Okay. Take care.